Francisco people used to ask me the same question in 2015 that what will be the biggest obstacles to the realization of these dreams and my standard response is to you shocks political shocks environmental shocks social shocks and shocks to our systems which are unanticipated and look what happened systemically we have a war in ukraine we had the covid-19 crisis these were not really anticipated shocks so i think while the trajectory is bad that we are not going to get to the goals and targets we set by 2030 what's going to be happening between now and 2030 are going to be increasing shocks which we can't even imagine shocks in the area of health shocks in the area of the environment shocks in our social systems shock in our political systems and those will throw us back and so what will happen in 20 say 2029 when people sit down to see how do we recraft what we've done it will be the impact of these unknowns which is difficult for us to understand but i know in the next 7 uh, 8 years there are going to be a large number of shocks and our resilience is what's going to define us Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Next Space the podcast designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. Today we have invited here in the studio with us Assistant Secretary General Nikhil Seth, who is the Executive Director of UNITAR, and we're going to talk about the importance of learning and knowledge in multilateralism and we're going also to talk about the history of the UN Institute for Training and Research, UNITAR, that turns 60 This year, the institute was created by the UN General Assembly back in 1963 and started operating in 65 in March exactly 65. Originally, it had the headquarters in uh, in New York in a building designed and built for for the institute and a European office here in Geneva, but in 1993, UNITAR headquarters then were moved to to Geneva and over the past decades the institute has acquired a unique expertise accumulating experience knowledge and a lot of capacity to design a variety of training activities and it also does research we'll hear more about it from from Nikhil said who is the uh, executive director as i said is UN assistant secretary general since 2015 and is the eight executive director of this well-known the world over institute. So, welcome to the podcast once again. You were with us in the first very first season and please why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience and tell us about how you became the eighth director of UNITAR. Thank you first of all for inviting me to this podcast and greetings to all you wonderful listeners all over the world. It's a pleasure to be with you. And to answer your question, uh, Francisco, I was and I have spent most of my life in the United Nations the last 30 years in and around the concept of sustainable development. I was first a delegate from India to the United Nations to the second committee to ICASAC to the Security Council and then I migrated to the secretariat where I was involved in the world of words in helping forge consensus amongst governments on a large number of big issues including most recently the sustainable development goals but before that the Millennium Development Goals and even earlier in 1992 on the Earth Summit in uh, Rio de Janeiro. So I have a wrap around view 
of the United Nations from policy to operations and I think UNITAR is now more in the realm of operation and thank you for remembering and wishing UNITAR a happy 60th birthday. It's, it's really great that UNITAR is in the place it is now and we are being able to do so much with our training and other capacity building. We reach almost 400,000 people every year and that's a great footprint. So I got here, as you asked me, after my world uh, of policy in uh, New York and Geneva where I spent 25 years when the former Secretary General Ban Ki-moon asked me to come to UNITAR to head up this institution. I think he felt that my role particularly in the development of the SDGs needs to reach people and he felt that I had the wherewithal to be able to transmit policy into country-level action. So I think that's what spurred him to appoint me as the head of UNITAR way back in 2015. Well, thank you for that. And let's talk a little bit about, about the Institute, the Institute at 60. It's a very, actually, young stuff complement, as I as I know and, and remember it. From my own time at UNITAR, I had, uh, I had the privilege of serving with UNITAR for a number of years. So the creation of the Institute back in the 60s coincided with this unique moment in time where we had the process of decolonization generating new members for the United Nations. In particular, in the first few years, there were 36 new member states joining the UN. 21, 28 of them were African uh, states. And what that generated was uh, a new request and requirement, a new demand for training and knowledge capacities. They were newly independent states. They had very little resources to train themselves in the practice of multilateral diplomacy and to train their own diplomats. And then this idea of creating the institute arose right from ECOSOC that then pushed it to General Assembly. And so can you tell us a little bit about the main moments in the history of the Institute in these 60 years of life? What can we say about that? You have, in a sense, covered the birth of UNITAR and the political history of UNITAR way back in the 60s. And you're right, the era of decolonization and the needs of newly independent countries was what spurred the creation of UNITAR. All these newly independent countries you mentioned had no diplomatic services, they had no diplomatic academies. And the first thing a newly independent country wants to do is to project itself on the global stage. And what better place to project itself than the United Nations? So the original compulsion for establishing UNITAR was in the realm of diplomatic training. And I think we did a tremendous job there. Many of these newly independent countries, in fact, 26 of the numbers you mentioned were in Africa. And if you look at the leadership of UNITAR, the first four executive secretaries of the eight were really from Africa. And so that was the origins. But since that, things began to evolve. Because after all, you don't remain newly independent all the time. And with years, many of these countries developed their own diplomatic training institutes and diplomatic training was driven nationally. So there were phases in the life of UNITAR and I'll reflect on some of the big turning points in the life of UNITAR. And these were propelled by contemporary politics of the time because contemporary politics have a very strong bearing on the way UN institutions evolve. Secondly, the compulsions of financial resources, because we are a project-driven office. 
So the type of funding we receive for what kind of projects is very important. And the third is the leadership of UNITAR. So these are the three kinds of forces, contemporary politics, finance, and the leadership of UNITAR, which guides the content of what UNITAR does. After that initial phase of diplomatic training, where the focus was essentially, as I mentioned, on creating diplomats in many of these newly independent countries, the focus shifted a little to using UNITAR as a think tank for the United Nations. So it became a think tank within the United Nations, yet a little distant from the Secretariat as such, to reflect upon the needs of multilateral diplomacy. Apart from training diplomats, what should be continuous learning for diplomats? What are the kind of publications that would help diplomats be in touch with their times? So that became the second kind of compulsion of being becoming a think tank of the United Nations, focusing on the issues, particularly of the Global South. And, uh, of course, this kind of research function, where uh, research was carried out, many publications were issued to help guide the diplomats in the world of multilateralism. But that, too, runs its course because, uh, you know, the UN is a highly political organization. And differences between North and South in the Cold War and the disputes around that led to certain donor countries not looking very favorably on the course that UNITAR was taking in that area. And so that phase came and passed. Then the financial compulsions became very severe for UNITAR. And as you mentioned, there was a lot of financial difficulties, particularly in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, which forced UNITAR to cut down all its activities dramatically. And then there was a phase of resurgence. So these are the four inflection points, diplomatic training, research, financial crisis, and then the resurgence of UNITAR. And UNITAR has now become a very diverse organization. And guided by the SDGs, that's what I brought to the organization because I've so deeply enmeshed in the SDGs that I felt that UNITAR must focus a lot on the SDGs. And now we are essentially SDG-driven, if I could use that expression. So this is how UNITAR has evolved and it's become. We are secure financially. We've been growing for the last seven years, almost 12% every year. And our footprint has increased almost 500% of beneficiaries every year. So these are the phases in the short history of UNITAR. And we'll talk more about what it means to sink the output and the research of the Institute onto Agenda 2030 and the SDGs. I think this is very uh, important part of our, of our conversation today. But before we go there, um, we, we saw how through these inflection points, UNITAR mattered in, in those historical moments of its lifespan during the 60s. How would you say briefly in what way UNITAR matters today. The SDGs seem simple to understand, but they're actually a very complicated theorem of development. Basic principle of the SDGs is everything is very closely interrelated. And till you can see those connections, those matrix of connections, you can't make intelligent policy and you can't allocate budgetary resources intelligently. So understanding that complexity, not only SDG by SDG, but the interrelationship between the SDGs need a lot of learning and uh, help to governments to reprioritize where they are putting all their attention. So I see 
the totality of our trainings, particularly with policymakers all over the world, focusing on a better understanding of this principle of integration and universality, which is enshrined in the sustainable development. Let me give an example to illustrate. Now, we think gender equality is only a question of justice, but it's much more than that. Because if you have greater gender equality and women's empowerment, you'll have better outcomes on poverty. You'll have better outcomes on health. You'll have better outcomes on almost each and every SDG, if I was to run down that list of SDGs. So women's empowerment is not something which is to be done by a small ministry of women's welfare. It is to be something which has to be mainstreamed in all governmental ministries and departments and down to the institutional and organizational levels, because those co-benefits will not accrue otherwise. So understanding this and persuading governments that they need to put greater effort and resources into gender equality is not only a question of social justice, it's a, it's a case for economic uh, prosperity, it's a case for environmental protection and regeneration, it's a case of course for just and fair and equal and honest societies and it's a case also for peaceful and just societies. So the complexity of the SDGs and how that figures into the basic decisions which affect economies, particularly on the budget, is extremely important. So getting that learning and to use integrated approaches in teaching about SDGs to all policymakers, I see as one of the primary missions of UNITAR. And during the lifespan of UNITAR, 60 years, the um, role of training and importance of knowledge in international relations and the way in the way we do multilateral diplomacy has evolved. Both of them have evolved considerably. So I was wondering if you could give us a sense of how was the institute capable of adapting to this transformation that has been uh, going on from the 60s to today in in the, in the in the area of training for example the transformation was radical it was completely di different then and now so how was how was unitar able to remain afloat and 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 adapt to this transformation unitar has to be at the cutting edge of knowledge generation and sharing the heart of multilateralism is intelligent multilateral decision-making. Intelligent multilateral decision-making is a corollary to better and informed delegations who negotiate, who come to outcomes, who come to legislation, and of course, the subsequent operational activities at the country level. But how do delegations from such diverse countries where knowledge is uneven, it is not a level playing field, how does UNITAR help these countries come to the negotiating table on an informed basis and make sensible policy? That is our basic challenge. It's always been, and in the 30 years of multilateralism that I've been through, uh, one thing I've always noticed is the unequal information base on which delegations operate. And now increasingly we are seeing the potent force of science and technology. And unless we have a room full of people who are equally equipped to understand the consequences for their diplomacy of the changes that are taking place from the knowledge base on which they operate. And I could give example after example, particularly on issues like climate change, biodiversity loss, forest degradation, land degradation, 
And there's so many issues around all these SDGs which require information which is imbued to all delegations in the room. And that is the heart of the knowledge-based learning that we hope to do with the diplomatic community. But it's not only in multilateral diplomacy because we've morphed from a training institute focusing on diplomacy alone to an institute that looks at policymakers uh, at the national level and how we can inject this knowledge in making intelligent decisions at the country level. Because country level and local levels are at the heart of change. And unless we can get this learning to policymakers at these levels, uh, we won't succeed in the broader goals and the mission of the United Nations. UNITAR is also very special um, in terms of operating model. It is part of the UN. It's independent from the Secretariat. It has its own board and governance. And above all, it's entirely project-based. For our audience who are not acquainted with the UN, it means that UNITAR does not receive regular contributions from governments, from states, who benefit from its programs, but it's project-based. So how does it work? How do you manage the financial front at UNITAR? There are two parts to what you've asked me. The one is on the governance model. And I think it's an intelligent model because... Getting enmeshed in the Secretariat and getting enmeshed in global politics, uh, as most organizations in New York who are part of the Secretariat do, has a downside. It has a very severe downside. And uh, the founding fathers of UNITAR uh, kept that distance of UNITAR because we are a knowledge institution. And many parts of the UN Charter, particularly those relating to the Secretary General's reports, take great pride in the independence and autonomy of knowledge. You can't enmesh that in politics. If you color everything you produce and you train and you build by politics, you'll never succeed. So that autonomy, I think, is very important for a knowledge-based institution. On financing, I must say, uh, we've had difficulties in the past, but I always say that donors vote with their wallets. And the fact that over the last seven years, at least, we've been growing means that we've been doing something right. Yes, they take a little flexibility out from my ability to direct a certain thematic identity to the activities we do. But that's a consequence. Donors have their pet themes. They have uh, development cooperation policies to implement. And that colors the areas for which they give money. But the fact that they are giving more and more money to UNITAR means they're happy with the end product. They're happy with the reports they get back on the evaluation they get back from those who have learned and who we've been able to build capacity on. So finances at this point in UNITAR's history is not uh, uh, the obsession it used to be, say, 10, 15 years ago when UNITAR was going through severe downturns and severe cutbacks on voluntary contributions. Let's talk a bit about the importance of this knowledge, knowledge and learning, in uh, the overall scheme of multilateralism and how multilateralism happens as a practice in, 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 in multilateral diplomacy. And that will give us also the opportunity to identify a little bit who are your beneficiaries, who are these clients that benefit from the knowledge generation you were mentioning. So in essence... UNITAR's work is about strengthening multilateral diplomacy, said it, and promoting Agenda 2030, and also delivering 
applied research solutions. Yeah, you you you're not afraid of technology. You're deep into data understanding and data usage. So, knowledge to lead is one of the mottos that uh, most people know from your websites, from your sort of uh, projection of Unitar in the public space. And can you tell us more than what knowledge for what leaders? Who are these leaders that come and benefit from your 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 programs? Leadership today is disaggregated, and uh, all of us are leaders in our domains. So it may be a big domain, it may be a small domain, but it has to be leadership imbued by a new spirit of collaboration and a new spirit of learning and knowledge. And so the people we reach, some of them may be less influential. They could be community leaders in helping uh, ameliorate some of the peace areas, some of the conflicts that we see, or they could be ministries of environment, they could be ministries of health and so on. So it's not the level which defines leadership necessarily. It's change leadership, which I would like to emphasize. And how does change come about, especially for adult learners? Change comes about only when the penny drops and you understand that what you've been doing and you've been doing for so many years is actually not looking at the full picture. And how do you get that full picture to create policy change? And those are the kind of change leaders we hope to reach. These four, five hundred thousand people we are reaching every year. We want to show them that there are ways of thinking and doing things differently. And that is uh, the way in which we reach these change makers. You talked about technology. I want to talk a little about technology because I think the way I have seen with the world change over the last five years, and it's an exponential growth which is going to continue for the next decade, is technology. And we keep hearing new and new things of the twinning of information and communication technologies with artificial intelligence and how that's going to revolutionize everything, including in education, learning, chat, GPT, the various other things like BARD, which is being developed and so on. And all that's going to revolutionize training. What we don't realize is that young people are learning very differently today from the way we learn. We relied on uh, a good classroom where we had good professors and good teachers. But now peer-to-peer -peer learning has become very important. It has always been, but I think technology has made it much more important than before. And attention spans have come down tremendously. So people want knowledge to drop into their brain with 150 characters or 15-second uh, TikTok uh, messages. So, and they are influencers. And yesterday also I listened to a talk on influencers. And it struck me that, you know, influencers are largely marketing devices. Can't they be put for the service of the UN and the common good? And how all this is going to impact on how we train, how we learn, how do we apply technology for that learning space is going to be very important. But beyond that, technology and the things we are seeing every day are going to impact on all the pillars of the United Nations work. They're going to have a impact, severe impact on peace and security with hybrid war and all kinds of things that are happening out there. They'll have an impact on social issues and human rights issues, on privacy, on space, on hate uh, speech, on all, all kinds of things which people are struggling against. And their legal recourse to settling some of the issues that arise is very limited. And then if you look at the other pillars, sustainable development, environmental issues, 
and the hope there is in technology to set our world on a better trajectory peace and justice and the implications technology has particularly on the justice field the way justice is meted out in a fair and uh, inclusive way all that will not happen unless we stay abreast of how technology especially over the next 5 6 years is going to impact upon all these pillars of the work of the united nations so in technology i think we need to invest much more there is a lot happening the global compact the compact on digital cooperation which is being negotiated but we need to think now and we need to have more robust regulatory frameworks you know eminent people like elon musk are also saying that look ai should stop we should uh, you know have more control i saw an interview with the head of microsoft who says that he doesn't have any control about the developers in his organization so ai is moving at its own speed and the safeguards the values and the ethics and the kind of uh, championship of the values of the un charter they are being lost in this race to produce the newer and newer product so i think we need to do much more in this realm of technology because that's where the future is and i think unitar has a role in helping define that world of the next 10 years and in helping create that understanding so when governments sit together to establish a robust regulatory framework for controlling which now looks like the mad scientist dream of creating monsters which are beyond anyone's control that can be controlled to some more intelligent system you've been mentioning here and there some of the areas in which unitar produces knowledge and generates uh, training opportunities for for your for your beneficiaries but i would like to make it clear for our audience so if you could just guide us through the key areas of engagement of unitar today my engagement in the sdgs did help uh, guide me in reorganizing unitar and for the media purposes in uh, the sdgs we created we uh, wrote the language of the five p's peace planet people prosperity and partnerships so that's become the divisional structure of unitar and we hope by doing more but if you look at the contemporary problems and the existential problems of our world it's of course peace we see every morning disastrous stories of uh, the breakdown in law and order breakdown in peace the actual violations of the un charter at a rate we've not seen since the end of the cold war or even up to the world wars and uh, so peace has to be an important focus peace of course is a complex issue uh, right from conflict pre- prevention to sustainable development goals and justice which is the basis of uh, long term peace but even on planetary issues on issues of things like climate change which is posing such an existential crisis for us or biodiversity loss or plastics pollution you name it uh, on the environment we are hitting all the tipping points and i don't think we are doing things dramatic enough to change the course of environmental degradation so what can we do in that space to make people sit up and say hey what's going wrong here uh, our world is on the brink of a catastrophe and uh, we are not doing anything dramatic there then on the area of people of prosperity on things like equality human rights justice economic prosperity better incomes safer employment decent work all that cluster of issues is the remit of our training but i'll come back to the point i made a little earlier 
to have an integrated vision of all these things. You can't solve environmental problems through an environmental approach alone. Unless you twin in the economic incentives, unless you bring in the societal uh, obligations, unless you have peace and security. Talk in, just as an example, does it make sense to talk about the environment in the crisis we are facing in Ukraine? It doesn't, till you have peace and security. Which government, which country is going to focus on sustainability issues from the environmental perspective? Seeing this integration and seeing this way of looking at these complex issues is very important. So if you look at contemporary challenges, as I started out in this long answer to your question, you have to look at how to change people's behavior and scale it to a dramatic extent if you want to see change. If it is not, 500,000 is fine. But I think I need to reach 500 million people if I need to have a change in the trajectory our world is on. So that's where we have to go. When we look at the action of UNITAR as a body of the UN system, let's say, and bringing that in the, in the more general scheme of how the, the UN operates in the world today as a system, not just as a secretariat, what strikes me in reading the mission of UNITAR on your, on your public outlet is that you work in the spirit of leaving no one behind and you strive to reach the furthest first, and I'm quoting, and this is also an element that is found in Agenda 2030. And you made it very clear that your experience in working with stakeholders leading to the adoption of Agenda 2030 in 2015 influenced you as, as a leader, and when you became the head of UNITAR, you imported that knowledge, that experience, and that wisdom in a way. But looking at the entire context of how UNITAR operates within a system that is the UN system today, how hard it is to do just that, to leave no one behind and reach the, the furthest first. It is a big challenge. It's a big challenge. I do remember the words, some of them uh, I wrote myself on the furthest, including that the SDGs will not be achieved till they are achieved for everyone. Putting words down is easy, but reaching the furthest is a real challenge. Uh, I talked a lot about technology, but technology is just not available to some of these people who are furthest. It's not only the furthest people, but also the countries that are furthest. Uh, they are defined as countries in special situations in the United Nations, that small island developing states, countries in conflict, countries in Africa, least developed countries, landlocked developing countries. How do we get to these furthest countries? And within these countries, how do we get to the furthest people? The furthest people are everywhere in rich and poor countries. But these are the most difficult to access by technology. They just don't have uh, internet or broadband. So it's very difficult to identify and reach these people. We have experimented. We tried radio in Africa and it worked. We, we had 3.5 million learners uh, on radio. But we have to work simultaneously with the other parts of the UN system to help these people enjoy better digital access and to be able to identify where are these furthest and how better can we reach them through training and learning. So it's a big challenge.
And I must say, I'm not happy with the statistics we have. Only 20 to 30 percent of our learners can be put under that category. But I would like 60 to 70 percent of learners in that category. But we'll get there with more innovation, with more uh, flexible ways of using technology and seeing how to use other media. It just doesn't have to be the iPhone and the smartphones and Internet. There are other ways of reaching people on large scale. And that is a perfect segue for talking about the future a little bit which is the last part of our of our episode today i wanted to ask you what is unitar's vision for the future our future in unitar is going to be driven by what i talked about earlier by technology and innovation especially for the way in which we reach more people especially in the way we adjust to reaching younger generations as I mentioned before, learn very differently from the way we did. And unless we are up to speed on the biggest revolutions in learning and education, and there's a lot happening around the world, how do we get all this to UNITAR so that we are at the cutting edge of the technology revolution and the cutting edge of how uh, you know top schools and colleges and universities are educating younger people? And how do we adapt that for adult learners? That is the technology part of what UNITAR needs to do. On the thematic identity of UNITAR, I think the SDGs will continue to guide the thematic identity of uh, UNITAR. And even after 2030, when the shelf life of the SDGs will be in a sense over, there will be a successor arrangement, which will probably, in my judgment, tweak the goals and targets to make them relevant for the next 10-15 years. SDGs are such a good and comprehensive framework, I don't think they'll be substituted by a new set of goals and targets, but they were over-ambitious to some extent. How could we promise to end poverty in 15 years? How could we promise to have health for all in 15 years? How could we promise to have gender equality and empowerment 15 years. These were aspirational goals. And while we may not achieve most or many of them, I think what we will do probably by 2030 is to push the envelope a little further, deeper into 2045 or something like that, where we won't abandon these goals and targets, but we'll make it relevant to what we have actually achieved. And so the SDGs and the other agreements, the big agreements, I have, I have a lot of hope in the Secretary General's common agenda and his Summit of the Futures, Future, where they are looking at many of these issues on how to supplement the tools we have essentially for realizing the 2030 agenda. How can all that accelerate the achievement of the SDGs? And we as a learning institution will have to be driven by the queue we get from the governments in these processes, especially the summit of the future, which would be in September of 2024, and use that to improve our delivery. Uh, but ultimately, the chapeau will continue to be the 2030 agenda. When we look at um, this phenomenal challenge of imagining sustainable development beyond 2030, I certainly agree with you that the agenda is here to stay. It's so well conceived, it's so modern in a way that it will be not just difficult, but useless to replace it. However, in your view, what is the crucial challenge when imagining post-2030 dot, dot, dot for sustainable development? Are we going to see a paradigm shift? Are we going to see another agenda? Uh, it's going to be a continuation or a shift for the better. How, 
could we make sense of that moment when we start discussing, possibly, as you said, at the summit of, for the future, the reality of post-2030? Francisco, people used to ask me the same question in 2015, that what will be the biggest obstacles to the realization of the SDGs? And my standard response used to be shocks, political shocks, environmental shocks, social shocks, and shocks to our systems, which are unanticipated. And look what happened since 2015. We have a war in Ukraine. We had the COVID-19 crisis. These were not really anticipated shocks. So I think while the trajectory is bad, that we are not going to get to the goals and targets we set by 2030, what's going to be happening between now and 2030 are going to be increasing shocks, which we can't even imagine. Shocks in the area of health, shocks in the area of the environment, shocks in our social systems, shock in our political systems, and those will throw us back. And so what will happen in 20, say 2029, 20, when people sit down to see how do we recraft what we've done, it will be the impact of these unknowns, which it's difficult for us to anticipate. But I know in the next uh, seven, eight years, there are going to be a large number of shocks and our resilience is what's going to define us. So I think where the SDGs of the future in 2030 will need to focus on is to how we can make our world more resilient to the shocks. What do we have to do for early warning in the area of health? What do we have to do in preventing further financial crisis and meltdowns? What do we have to do to keep societal harmony and balance? These are the kinds of resilience issues which I think the SDGs of the future will have to focus on much more robustly. Create and prepare for contingencies. That's something we didn't write into the SDGs as much as we should have. Because what's shaken the SDGs are shocks rather than uh, a bad design. So I think when we revisit this issue, uh, we will be doing humanity as service through multilateralism. If we can build into it, based on our experience from 2015 to 2030, of the things that have knocked the SDGs down. That's very powerful and that there is profound wisdom in your, your words. I'm sure that our audience is appreciating that. It is a perfect place to come to wrap up of our conversation. And I was wondering if you would like to just give your final thoughts to our audience on the importance of knowledge, learning, and the work you do. What would you like our audience to remember from this conversation? What I'd urge all to do is to never give up on continuous learning. And without continuous, your, your knowledge base changes every day until you nurture it, till you find ways of improving the knowledge base on which you operate, you will not be a good global citizen. And to be a good global citizen, you have to constantly update your knowledge. So the last thought really for me is keep at it. Don't give up on continuous learning. No matter where in life you are, you will find the experience of learning enrich everything you do. Oh, thank you for that. And exactly to that point, to your point, where can the audience find more about UNITAR and all your wonderful trainings and learning opportunities? We have a wonderful website. And if you Google UNITAR, you'll get to that website. 
and it's very well organized. So some of you who are interested in training programs of UNITAR, others who might be interested in seeing what UNITAR does to be able to contribute more generously to UNITAR, you will find it all there. And uh, I think that's what uh, you need to do. Excellent. So Assistant Secretary General Nikhil said, eight Executive Director of UNITAR, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on this episode. Thank you, Francisco.